Welcome back to Roshcast, episode 34. Last week, we kicked off another trauma ringtone contest, which we're running again until episode 38. Listen closely for a ringtone during an upcoming episode and email us at roshcast at roshreview.com or tweet to us at at roshcast the exact time of the ringtone to win a prize. This week, we'll let the question bank randomly generate a few questions in addition to a couple of questions related to appendicitis to supplement this week's EM Clerkship podcast. And for those of you who will be at ASAP next week, make sure to swing by the Rosh Review booth number 1442 to say hi and give us any feedback or suggestions to make Roshcast even better. All right, I think that's enough of an intro. Let's get on with the rapid review. In honor of the Rosh Review core content winners, Dr. Robert Sanders and Dr. Dana Levin, let's review dysbarism. What are the typical symptoms seen in a diver with an arterial gas embolism? A diver with an arterial gas embolism would classically present within 10 minutes with neurologic symptoms that resolve and then recur. Typical symptoms include unconsciousness, respiratory or cardiac arrest, coma, stupor, confusion, unilateral neurologic changes, visual disturbances, dizziness, or convulsions. What symptoms are typically seen with decompression sickness? 68% of patients present with joint pains, 63% present with numb patches and paresthesias, and 41% have constitutional symptoms and fatigue. Other less common symptoms can include dizziness and vertigo, weakness, itching, hearing loss, and tinnitus. And to bring it all home, what's the treatment for both an arterial gas embolism and decompression sickness? On scene, a diver with either an arterial gas embolism or decompression sickness should be treated with the standard IV fluids, supplemental oxygen, and be placed in a monitor. Definitive treatment is with hyperbaric oxygen. Great job. Be sure to check out Dr. Sanders and Dr. Levin's 15-minute presentation at roshreview.com blog for one of the best reviews of anything you'll ever see. Let's get going with the new material. You're up first. Which of the following is the average duration of a typical generalized tonic-clonic seizure? Is it A, 1 to 2 minutes, B, 10 to 15 seconds, C, 30 to 40 seconds, or D, 4 to 5 minutes? Well, 4 to 5 minutes seems a bit long, and 10 to 15 seconds sounds too short, so that eliminates choices B and D. I'm going to go with choice A, 1 to 2 minutes, which sounds just about right. That's correct. Most generalized tonic-clonic seizures will stop on their own in 1 to 2 minutes. It doesn't sound that long when you say it aloud, but it feels like an eternity when you're in the moment. Choice D, a seizure of 4 to 5 minutes, that's approaching status. We talked about this a few weeks back. Any seizure lasting greater than five minutes or two discrete seizures without a recovery to consciousness qualifies as status epilepticus. And quickly, since you mentioned it, give me the first, second, and third line medications used to treat seizures. First line medications include benzodiazepines. Second line medications include phenytoin, phosphenytoin, valproic acid, phenobarbital, and levetiracetam. Third line agents include pentobarbital and propofol. We covered status extensively in episode 30, so it's worth a quick listen if you struggled with that. Okay, you're up for the next question. This is certainly a testing favorite, so listen closely. A 23-year-old man presents with abdominal pain, vomiting, and two loose, non-bloody stools. He's tender to palpation in the right lower quadrant. A CT is performed that shows a normal appendix and some inflammation at the ileocecal junction. Which pathogen is commonly implicated in this disorder? Is it A, Aramonas species, B, Salmonella enterica, C, Vibrio perihemolyticus, or D, Yersinia enterocolitica? 23-year-old with right lower quadrant pain, absolutely shocking this isn't appendicitis. This is one of those random associations you have to know. Choice D, Yersinia intercolitica, causes ileocecitis, which mimics appendicitis. Exactly. Ingestion of Yersinia enterocolitica leads to invasion of the intestinal mucosa. 
one-third of patients will present just as if they had appendicitis, with minimal to no diarrhea and right lower quadrant pain with or without a fever. The other two-thirds will present with more of a typical gastroenteritis picture. That's colicky abdominal pain, fevers, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And the treatment for your city anticholytica, that's self-limiting, right? So you just supportive? That's right. No medications needed for Yersinia. Just supportive care with hydration and antiemetics. Do you remember what other bacterial intestinal infection can cause a similar presentation to appendicitis? I believe you're looking for Campylobacter jejuni. And what are some of the classic post-infectious complications of a Yersinia enterocolitica infection? Uh, I'm not sure. Sorry, that's a bit of a read-my-mind question. I'm looking for erythema nodosum and reactive arthritis. Oh, that's right. You're up for the next one. A nine-month-old girl presents to the ED with progressive dyspnea. The patient's mother reports URI symptoms for two weeks. Over the previous 24 hours, the patient has become increasingly fussy, noted to be sweaty with feeds, and has become increasingly dyspneic. Her vital signs are a temperature of 38.3, a heart rate of 180, a respiratory rate of 38 with a pulse ox of 93%, and her blood pressure 60 over 40. She has rails at the bases and an irregular heart rhythm and a liver edge palpable 3 centimeters below the costal margin. Which of the following is the most appropriate therapeutic interventions? Is it A, dobutamine, B, immediate endotracheal intubation, C, normal saline, 20 mils per kg bolus, D, propranolol, or E, transcutaneous pacing? Progressive dyspnea, fever, what sounds like rapid AFib, hypoxia, hypotension, RALS. It sounds like this infant is in heart failure in the setting of a URI. We should go to the pediatric treatment for heart failure, which is choice A, dobutamine. You put that together perfectly. This child likely has acute myocarditis from a viral infection that led to heart failure. This is actually a common scenario for infant myocarditis, a kid with a prolonged viral illness who later develops diaphoresis with feeds, dyspnea, hepatomegaly, and tachycardia. And although this patient likely had a viral illness, there are a few common etiologies to know about for myocarditis. These include bacteria, parasites, cardiotoxins, systemic disorders, radiation, and hypersensitivity. All of these can lead to myocarditis. And although the gold standard for diagnosis of myocarditis is an endomyocardial biopsy, which certainly isn't an ED bedside procedure, you should begin treating based on the clinical presentation without a formal diagnosis as these patients are sick and definitely can't wait. If available, a cardiac MRI may also help with making the diagnosis. So you just mentioned starting treatment, and we already covered inotropy with dibutamine. What else should we be doing here? Right, so we already talked about dobutamine. That's the most common medication used to improve inotropy. Milrinone can be used, but it wouldn't be appropriate in this patient who's already hypotensive. Milrinone reduces afterload, so it would potentially worsen her hypotension. Other treatments include antidysrhythmics as needed. Antiviral medications may be used in those with a lymphocytic myocarditis. IVIG may play a role in giant cell and eosinophilic myocarditis. And last but not least, immunosuppressants may be used in cases of chronic myocarditis. Great review. Let me go over the other answer choices here. Intubation may improve oxygenation, but the patient's primary problem here is pump failure, and there would certainly be a benefit from hemodynamic optimization prior to intubation. Generally, small boluses of saline are tolerated in all patients, but with Rawls and signs of both left and right failure, this would probably worsen her respiratory status. Propranolol, a non-selective beta blocker, may lead to complete cardiovascular collapse, and transcutaneous pacing is used for patients in heart block or with unstable bradycardia, which is simply not the case here. Okay, we're back to the abdomen for the next one. Which of the following statements is true regarding appendicitis? Is it A, an appendicolith is identified in the majority of cases, B, leukocytosis is seen in the majority of cases, C, perforation is rare in patients younger than two years, or D, the presence of an appetite makes the diagnosis unlikely? 
Really tough question. Choice C is out because I think perforation is actually quite common in infants as appendicitis is usually caught late. I believe choice D, that an appetite makes the diagnosis unlikely, that's been disproven. So I'm left with choice A and B. I guess I'll go with choice B. A leukocytosis is seen in the majority of cases. You're correct. A leukocytosis occurs in up to 70% of patients with appendicitis. It's true that an appendicolith, choice A, can be one of the causes, but it's actually only identified radiographically about 10% of the time. I'm surprised the number is that low. So my statement is qualified as being radiographically identified. It would be much higher if you included appendicolites identified in the OR or on pathology exam after removal. Other causes for obstruction of the appendiceal lumen include lymphoid hyperplasia, calculus, parasite, and tumors. Obstruction leads to an increase in intraluminal pressure and eventually distension. Distension turns to vascular compromise, which leads to invasion of bacteria and localized peritoneal inflammation, hence fever and right lower quadrant pain. And what about choice D, the presence of an appetite? Is there data on that? Interestingly, up to 33% of patients diagnosed with appendicitis do not report anorexia on initial presentation. Much higher than I would have expected. You're up next, and we're changing gears. Which of the following is most characteristic of phimosis? Is it A, a collection of dilated and tortuous veins surrounding the spermatic cord? B, the inability to retract the foreskin over the glands? C, the inability to return retracted foreskin over the glands, or D, a painless cyst filled with sperm. Not to be confused with paraphimosis, phimosis is the inability to retract the foreskin over the glands, which is choice B. Exactly. And paraphimosis is the inability to return the retracted foreskin over the glands, which is choice C. Right. Phimosis is a complication seen in uncircumcised males. 50% of boys are able to retract their foreskin by one year of age, and 80% are able to do so by age three. And how is phimosis treated? Phimosis is not clinically significant until age 4, at which point low-potency topical corticosteroid therapy combined with daily foreskin retractions often solves the problem. Topical estrogen has reportedly also been used with success, but that isn't ready for prime time. In comparison, paraphimosis is definitely something we treat in the emergency department. This is a true urologic emergency, as vascular engorgement leads to necrosis of the glands. The first step in management would be ice packs and plastic wrap, which may reduce the edema to the point that manual reduction could be successful. However, if it's not, a dorsal slit would need to be performed. Definitely something you'll want your urology colleagues involved for. I'll finish up the other answers while you load up the last question. Choice A, a varicocele, is a collection of dilated and tortuous veins surrounding the spermatic cord. Varicoceles usually cause no symptoms. Choice D, a painless cyst filled with sperm, that's a spermatocele. This is also of no consequence, and you can assure patients it won't affect fertility. On exam, you can sometimes palpate the spermatocele distinct from the testes and transilluminate them as well. Okay, we're back in the right lower quadrant for the last one. Which of the following historical features has a high positive likelihood ratio for acute appendicitis? Is it A, migration of pain from the periumbilical area to the right lower quadrant, B, the obturator sign, C, presence of pain for more than 48 hours, or D, vomiting before onset of pain? Stats are really your forte, but I feel like choice A is such a classic description. Migration of pain from the periumbilical area to the right lower quadrant, I'll go with that. It has to be considered classic for a reason. Your instincts were right on this one. H&P features that have a high positive likelihood ratio for acute appendicitis include migration of the pain from the periumbilical area to the right lower quadrant, the presence of right lower quadrant tenderness, and abdominal wall rigidity. What about choices C and D? Pain for more than 48 hours and vomiting before the onset of the pain. I'm glad you mentioned that. Pain greater than 48 hours, previous episodes of similar pain, lack of migration, lack of right lower quadrant pain, and the presence of vomiting before the onset of the pain actually all confer a lower risk of appendicitis. Interesting. And remind me, obturator sign? What's that again? 
Obturator sign is the elicitation of pain by flexing and internally rotating the right hip. This signifies a pelvic location of the appendix. Don't confuse this with Rosvink sign, which is when palpation of the left lower quadrant causes referred pain to the right lower quadrant. Let's end with one final quick appy fact before we close this episode out with a rapid review. What percent of the population will have appendicitis at some point in their life? Um, 5 to 10%? Pretty spot on. It's actually estimated to be about 7%. This is definitely a common disease. Let's close out with a rapid review. The average duration of a generalized tonic-clonic seizure is 1 to 2 minutes. Status epilepticus is defined as any seizure lasting greater than 5 minutes or two discrete seizures without a recovery to consciousness. For the treatment of status epilepticus, benzodiazepines are the first-line agents. Second-line agents include phenytoin, phosphenytoin, valproic acid, phenobarbital, and levetiracetam. Pentobarbital and propofol are third-line agents. Yersinia enterocolitica causes ileocecitis, which can mimic appendicitis. Other symptoms include colicky abdominal pain, fever, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Treatment is with supportive care only. Pediatric heart failure is treated with dobutamine if hypotensive or milrinone if normal or hypertensive. Common causes for myocarditis include viruses, bacteria, parasites, cardiotoxins, systemic disorders, radiation, and hypersensitivity. A leukocytosis is seen in up to 70% of patients with appendicitis. Appendicolates are rarely identified. They are only seen 10% of the time radiographically. 33% of patients diagnosed with acute appendicitis do not report anorexia. Phimosis is the inability to retract the foreskin over the glands. Paraphimosis is the inability to return the retracted foreskin over the glands. A varicocele is a collection of dilated and tortuous veins surrounding the spermatic cord. They usually cause no symptoms. There is a high positive likelihood ratio for acute appendicitis with migration of pain from the periumbilical area to the right lower quadrant. Obturator sign is elicitation of pain with flexion and internal rotation of the right hip. This signifies a pelvic location of the appendix. Rosfing sign is palpation of the left lower quadrant, causing referred pain to the right lower quadrant. All right, so that concludes the new content for Roshcast episode 34. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related to images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. There are also tons of other great free resources there to help prepare you for the boards and the words. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast and at RoshReview. And as always, you can email us at roshcast at roshreview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. You can also help us pick questions by identifying ones that you would like us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality review. 